Stay hungry, stay foolish. The intro to this show was a little bit different today. This week's guest, musician Peter Himmelman, author of The Great Let Me Out. Peter, welcome to the show. Aiden, my pleasure to be with you today. I read your brilliant book. The book is called Let Me Out, and I'll have links on the website and all web outlets. Peter, it would be great before we even start talking about the book and the lessons in part is to talk about you because you have a really interesting backstory. Well, you know, I, I have done a few things. and Sometimes somebody said to me, you know, well, you've done so many things and creative and all this stuff, sort of putting a laudatory spin on it. And as is my self-deprecating way, I'm like, well, look, man, if I'd have gotten, you know, a platinum, a couple platinum records, maybe I wouldn't have had to do all this different stuff. So sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's the challenges that put you in your interesting places, maybe usually. Tell us about the, the music, I suppose, because when you think about people, they usually have a lead skill or something that they started with. And for you, that was music. Yeah, I mean, you know, I started in music. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. There's a fertile music scene there. There always was. There was blues, there was bluegrass, there was jazz, certainly funk. Everybody knows that Prince was from Minneapolis. So I, I was involved in all of it uh, at one time or another. And so my music kind of pretty much of a hybrid of all these different styles. And it was just a really nice... Uh, way to get started. I think it was so cold in the winter that if you didn't drive a snowmobile and hunt moose or something, you pretty much set to take up a music career because you had all this time in the basement. So it was also a way of making friends with people, making community, kind of rallying around an idea, which I found very helpful. And then I moved to New York and I got a record deal, a couple record deals, started putting out uh, you know, records for Island Records and uh, Sony. Uh, and then I made a bunch on a smaller labels. I also started scoring television and films, did a lot of network television scoring in America. Judging Amy that I did for many years, ah, there's yeah. a show called Bones. So, you know, I was doing that for a while and it got a little, uh, it's just got a little claustrophobic because I, I like to be out and perform and talk to people. So I sort of started this new business called Big News. And I, as it stands now, I go around to a lot of different universities and companies like McDonald's and Gap and United States military, even Adobe 3M and, and just kind of giving them, I, I think in a weird way, sort of an artist's perspective. You know, what, what a, how do artists approach a problem? What is, uh, what is the perspective of this, of this alien in the room, especially as it relates to the corporate world? And a lot of what I do is have people write music, write songs, people that never had any thought that they, <clears throat> they had any skills or ability in that area. And sometimes setting up people with something that seems not to match what they do is a very helpful way to learn. Just like you and I were talking before the interview about things that we done had done in our past. And there's not a direct relationship, 
to where we're going, but you can always see, as you said, you sort of see the threads and the strands. So that's kind of what I help people do. Yeah, and that that makes total sense for the book because the book aims to, I suppose, democratize you or scale your thinking to reach everybody, not just the companies you work with. And it'd be great to, to launch into that because you're, it makes total sense now your background and, you know, all, almost that creativity and the the non kind of corporatization of you, of of an artist that doesn't have to answer to anybody in a certain way. Yes, you have clients, but you don't have to dress a certain way or behave a certain way in an environment, in, yeah. a, in a corporate environment. You know, and that that's something that comes across in the book that you're trying to liberate people from this. Yeah, it's it's almost uh, somewhat almost paradoxical. I mean, this book is used in businesses and at business colleges. And in some way, if you look at it, um, it doesn't really, I don't really talk about business or corporations. I talk about people. You know, ostensibly businesses are, are staffed with human beings. You know, sometimes we forget that. So the book has a lot more to do with uh dare I say, a a spiritual aspect, Um, this idea of taking the nascent elements of your mind and your imagination and what does it take to make them manifest in the real world, like this radio show you're doing, this podcast. You know, it probably came to you one night and like, yeah, maybe I should do this. And I'm sure it came with a host of apprehensions too, like, you know, who am I? And how am I, how would this matter? And in, and in defeating that, no matter what the scale is, because it's always the same, it's always universal, and simply going ahead with an idea and making it manifest, it's such a rare thing. It's such a laudable thing. And I guess the book is trying to, in some way, it's a book of subversion. It, it could literally, I mean, if it caught on, it, it could subvert economies and I, and I go into this a little bit in the book and you know we're force fed all this stuff that we don't really need as you mentioned how to dress and regulations and and also entertainments and things that we buy sometimes because we have imbibed a message of our inferiority we need x because we're not y and here the book is saying, you don't really need all that. Start cooking and making podcasts, you know, make love, make birdhouses, make poetry. You know, you will be so much more fulfilled than stuff that you pay for. Do you know, Peter, one thing that really jumped out at me was when you talk about most fear that stops people, that fear that's blocking people in life, like parking the corporate, you know, handcuffs that some people have is based in some type of past experience because even for me a lot of stuff I've done and even my thinking your thinking has to be you know molded by past experiences and it's quite hard to break away from that and you give some great tips on how to do that yeah I have a a bit in the book I talk you know I talk a lot about that it's fact more and more now I, I call this thing it's called elephant ropes is the name I gave to it it comes from this idea where elephant trainers, if you want to train an elephant, 
you need to make it stay in place. That's that's fundamental because otherwise you're going to be trampling over everything. So you take a big piece of chain, and while the baby's an you know elephant's a baby or an infant, you chain by its ankle or foot to like a post or a tree, and it fights for a couple of years. It tries to get away, and when it matures, it's become so used to being chained up it's just it's such a futile effort that it it never even tries anymore so you could just you could have no chain or maybe just a little representative chain like a piece of thread which it could break in a second and then the, the quest is to find things in our own life that are acting the same way that are holding us back that like wait a minute we've got all these assumptions these deep inhibiting assumptions about something that's actually not real it's it's basically an uh an artifact of our imagination now i should point out that these things are not typically like you know my parents were killed in a plane crash god forbid or it's a divorce or serious ill illness they're always little things like some slight or an affront from some girl when you were in sixth grade, like as in my case, some kid I was talking to in college, uh, he was going, uh, he's getting his master's degree. So he wasn't quite a kid. He was 26 years old in Boston. I was doing some class and he started telling me his story. He's a cool looking guy, athletic. So he wasn't, didn't seem like he was prone to oversensitivity. He started telling me his story, and it, it started when he was in nursery school. He starts talking. It was a funny story. He said he wanted to go as Winnie the Pooh to a to a Halloween thing at his nursery school or kindergarten, and his mom sewed him this wonderful costume. And he got to school the next day, and he said to his friends, "What are you going as?" And they said, "Well, I'm going to go as a Ninja Turtle." And they told, he said, well, I was going to go as Winnie the Pooh, and they all laughed at him. So as he's telling the story, he goes back to his mom, and he says, you know, Mom, I want to go as a ninja turtle. And he starts crying, this 26-year-old guy, like in the midst of telling the story, how bad he felt for not having, you know, the strength and the resilience to do what he wanted to do, that he caved into these other kids and he sort of dismissed his mother's efforts. And it, there are always these kinds of things. And once you kind of think about them, you write them down or you tell them to somebody, they literally go away. They're, they basically just vanish. Apart from corporate conditioning, it's so apparent in our lives every day where people, you know, I, I see this, I have to say, with successful people that oftentimes, and you must come across it so much, Peter, a lot of musicians in particular were bullied or were ridiculed like that, but they stuck to their guns and uh, and either through adversity because they couldn't condition themselves to act like everyone else does or else they stuck to their guns and they said, you know, this is who I am, I'm going to embrace it. And by doing that, that's where the success comes from. I mean, it's it's one of the axioms that you you can't achieve anything without going through some wall of fear, anything of value. If you examine your own life, anything, whether it's a relationship or anything that you have that you're proud of, 
you could almost be assured that it didn't come easily. And yet there's always matters and myself included. I'm, I don't, have not become an expert at this. I, I only find more and more challenges, but there's always something that's really intimidating and you can't find any sort of the fruit or substance of life until you simply you don't even have to be brave. You don't have to be confident. I don't even believe in those things. You simply have to act. You simply have to create a will to move, an impetus to to proceed. And once you do, so many things are answered. Yeah, and you talk about the idea, and one of the tools that you give in the book is the idea you've come up with of the BBO, the brain bottle opener. Could we tell our audience a bit about that one, Peter? Well, there's a bunch of different ones. I I just thought, you know, I better have some like exercises in this book. And I hate the word exercises. <laughs> they make me take just like, oh man, I gotta do an exercise and you you've know. Changed, book, Adam, you've changed, Peter. <laughs> I don't even, you know, I, just the word exercise is so off-putting. So I had a, I try yeah. to make up something kind of funny or self-effacing. A brain bottle opener. It just kind of opens you up. So there's a bunch of different ones. Um, you know, some are very, they're all very simple and, and none of them are direct. You'd, you'd stop and say, and I'll explain one in a second. Well, what does that have to do with, you know, bringing your idea to life? One of the things that I, and I do this in corporations and all sorts of things, is I have people take a timer you know everything's on a timer with me because my my belief is we never do anything unless it's the 11th hour unless there's pressure upon us some sort of impetus that says go and in in lieu of there being some external impetus like you know you have a deadline or something i i constantly create my own and i think the iphone or any smartphone with a timer is a really helpful one you set it for three or four minutes and you start writing a letter that you didn't want to write. And you find that it's much easier. You can deal with four minutes, but you can't deal with four hours. So I have people write a letter in these, you know, there's a lot of context that goes along with it. I sort of tell a story about my dad and and his last days. He had a, you know, terminal cancer diagnosis. and And I wrote him this song like in the final few weeks of his life. And I play the song and I play it to people to kind of say like, we're alive now. Time is, this is it. This is what we have. And one of the main goals that we want to achieve is to create community around ourselves. And And the best way to do that is to create a community with the people you're closest to. So when people are in the mood, I say, you know, I'm going to give you two minutes to write a letter to somebody that you love. And it's a strange thing, especially in these weird contexts, like what, where, why am I doing this? I'm in a corporation, but you see, even in your personal life, sending your mom a note or your brother or some friend that you haven't seen, you know, I don't need to tell you that there's all this data out there to suggest that this makes people really happy because I hate data. I don't need it. I can intuit a lot of truths without it. But for those that yeah. do need it, 
there is a lot of data suggesting that when you tell somebody that you love them and they and they respond, or even if you send it, you are in a condition now to be less affected by your fear of failure. You, you've created a sense of strength and courage and community around yourself, which defies that sort of inner voice that's telling you all the time, you know, you can't do this. It's not you. You're not smart enough. You're not good looking enough. Yeah, and you call this inner voice. You have a name for this inner voice as well, Peter, which would be interesting to tell our audience about Marv. I, one day I decided I'm going to try to, I like to draw. So I drew a picture, like a kind of a cartoon of this voice. Now, so what, and I thought, well, how will I depict the voice of fear? It, should it be like this demonic looking, you know, thing with blood out of its fangs and talons and, you know, I thought of it just the most mild, meek, kind of scared thing. So it's a little cartoon, almost like almost a self-portrait. And I named this character Marv, just because I thought it was a name that was very sort of harmless. And if you're a killer, fight, you know, UFC, and your name is Marv, good on you, you know. But <laughs> And then I realized, you know, Marv stands for majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability. It's a central part of the book. So if I can just explain a little bit what this is all about. Marv or the voice of fear, which everybody has. You can be the richest person in the world. You can be famous. You can be beautiful. You can be a rock star. You can be a professional athlete. In some situation, this Marv will always show itself. And, And the first instinct we have is, I wish there was a way to kill this. Marv or eliminate it. And what I'm trying to posit in the book is a little, little different is that's not the way to do it. Because first of all, you need Marv. Marv is a function of your amygdala. And you'll never get rid of it. It's in your, what they call the primitive or emotional brain. And its function is to save your life. It's a, it's a very life-saving function. You know, if, if you're in a war or God forbid, you know, some wild animal is after you. Those are the times when Marv or your amygdala, this primitive brain, fight or flight, or, you know, this is when your adrenaline starts pumping. Without Marv, you don't have this. But the problem is, is that 99.9% of the time, we don't need Marv. So why is he there inhibiting me, for example, from like delivering a poem of mine? Why, Why would he fear that? Why would Marv intuit getting up and reading a poem as, as a potential mortal threat. So here's the chain of, of logic, and I, it is really logical. Marv is saying, Peter, if you get up in front of these people and you, you recite this poem, there's a chance you could fail, that no one will like it. Okay, that's logical. Then he goes on, if you fail, you will be ashamed. Shame is something that human beings do not like. We can hardly, hardly handle it. And why? Because the implication of shame is that we are abandoned. And for sure, human beings, unless you're a psychopath, are designed to be communal beings. Outside a community, we're just lost. And he goes one step further, the coup de grace, the final is that he says, Peter, 
when you were a child, an infant, pre-verbal, you understood that abandonment literally meant your death. He's 100% right. And then you get into this kind of scared reverie, like, oh, my God, you know, this is really scary, this poem or whatever it is I want to do. And what Marv really is looking for is for you to sort of snap out of it and say, wait a minute, I'm not going to die from this poem. I'll be embarrassed as hell. You know, maybe I'll curl up into a fetal ball and soil myself, but I'm not going to die. <laughs> and once you snap out of that and you say, Marv, thank you for, for trying to help me, but I'm going to do this anyway. As soon as you take action, Marv is sitting in a chair next to you, metaphorically, of course, and, and basically becoming your greatest advocate. He becomes your yeah. champion for the moment you're doing it. Now, he'll be back in a couple of hours. He'll be back tomorrow. You'll never get rid of him. But in those Marv-free moments that you create, those hours at a time, the amalgam of them becomes the building blocks of something, you know, quite extraordinary. The way you describe Marv in the book, I, I kind of got a picture of, a bully and you know when you stand up to a bully a bully usually becomes very weak and that's what i kind of got in my head the idea of marv but marv is one step and you know challenging marv and writing him a letter is one step and then you go on to say about your vision because we often talk about vision and companies or he was a visionary leader but you talk about embracing this as a person as well because you need to get that out on paper to almost commit yourself to it yeah, I mean, and as far as as far as the connection to personal development, to business, especially into leadership, and in some ways, everybody who's around other human beings is going to be a leader in some way. The idea, and it's very strategic, is if you don't know where you're going, you don't understand your strengths, and more perhaps more importantly, your shortcomings. You have no ability and therefore no credentials, no credibility to lead others. So it becomes a very important, very strategic, not just some like, you know, emotional new age bullshit thing. Um, and I talk about having a vision of where you want to go as a person with your family, with your friends. And, you know, I, I call this thing the, future vision statement. I actually have one of mine sitting on the wall behind me right now. It's, it might not be something you want to show other people, but it's like, where are you in five years? Literally, where are you in space and time? You know, are you in Madagascar? Are you in Dublin? Are you in London? Are you in Santa Monica? Who are you with? How are you feeling about life? You know, and it's, it's designed to be very aspirational. And you find some people, for, for reasons somewhat unknown to me, is that they, they're very timid about how they dream for themselves. You know, they don't want to, they, they're constantly worried about what's realistic. And I'm sort of saying, at this moment for this brain bottle opener, this exercise, don't be timid. Dream huge. Dream beyond the limits of what you think is real. There's always time to, to do less. But if 
you certainly will be constrained by that vision. You know, let it let it guide you to bigger things. So having one of those, you know, taking 15 minutes, again, not like five hours, just where do you see yourself? Who are you with? How are you feeling about life? What are you doing? Maybe you're in a job that you hate or in a role that you hate. Write a new one for yourself. You've always wanted to play the piano. Write that in there. You know, you want to get in better shape and lose weight, play some rugby. You know, write that in there. And and then you place it in a place where you can see it every day. It's just kind of a, it's a of course, it's a metaphor. It's not going to, that's not some magic wand or anything. But having this direction, this subtle focus is really helpful. Yeah, it kind of it helps you hold yourself responsible, I suppose, when you see it every day, and you become your own Marv. Where you're kind of, kind of going, "Hey, you haven't finished that, man. You said you'd have it done by a certain date." And I, I yeah, totally right. Man. It, it 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 could cause a little discomfort too, which is good. Your timing, man. You you talk about is so key as well. Like I, I write a, a blog every week, and I call this the Thursday Thought blog. Because mm. I have to do it on a Thursday, and there's, and I knew right. if I didn't, if I just did it a weekly blog, I would let it go some weeks. And I was like, no, I have to do it. And I haven't missed one in 60, 60 weeks or something like that because it's called the Thursday Thought. Even over Christmas, I kind of go, I could be lazy and put out a repeat or put out a, you know, a weaker one. But because you're standing over it and you're holding it over yourself and you're holding yourself accountable, you have to deliver to yourself. It's really, you know, these are the these are the kind of the uh, forcing frames. I hesitate to use the word traps because that has a negative connotation. But like, if somebody isn't saying, "Hey, I'm going to pay you fifty thousand dollars to do this by Wednesday," which is a great motivator, believe me, you know, you need then to create your own motivators. You need to create your own forcing frames or your own traps to make sure these things get done. And you're doing them, you know, you're kind of in control, so it's not going to be painful. Moving on uh, to some of the other ones, because uh, I know I know you're under time pressure because you have a rehearsal <laughs> later on, is the idea of embracing change, Peter, because you talk about this really well in the book, about embracing the change that's coming, but also remembering adverse change that happened in your life and how you mm-hmm. dealt with it. And, and looking at yourself in the mirror and going, was I accountable there? Was I responsible for it, even if it didn't go my way? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that's at least I had overlooked for a long time. We, we we attach ourselves to these narratives about things in our past that might not have gone well. You know, this guy did this, and this guy was a total asshole, and, you know, these are our narratives, and we walk around with them. But without real deep introspection, we're not going to grow from those. And and I offer this idea, I forget what I call it because I gave all these things like snappy names, you know. But (laughs) the thought was, okay, you've had this running narrative. And one of the things that I wrote about in the book, I was pretty transparent about it. I was working on that show Bones. And in the third year, after the third year, they had a writer's strike and, you know, of course, they're going to hire me back because I'm Peter Himmelman. Well, they didn't. They got another guy. They fired me. And I was so distraught. And I'm carrying around this narrative like, you know, this guy's an asshole, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out 
as I looked at it closely and I rewrote the, the script, in other words, I think I called the rewrite. Well, what are the things that I did wrong? What are the things that con- that I did that contributed to this situation? Um, you know, in hindsight, I'm kind of glad it all worked out like it did, but it gave me a lot of consternation for a lot of years. You know, did I actually call this one guy who's like an overworked associate producer who was always giving me notes on my music? And it got so rancorous that I had him leave the notes on my answering machine. I didn't want to talk to him. Well, how did that help? You know, how much of my ego was in there? You know, and when I looked at it, I, I see how I could have probably prevented the whole thing. And I think that's a healthy exercise going forward. And this could be for, you know, friendships that erode or divorce, or, you know, anything that you found sort of unpleasant that you want to really examine and open it up. You find a lot of fruit there to go forward with. Yeah. It really, when I read that, it, it really echoed with me that it's like, the, the saying where if you point a finger, there's three pointing back at you, and you have to recognize yeah. what did I do? What did I do to to contribute to this? Because either it was a miscommunication, because we're always to blame some way. I always find that there's a, not blame, but it, you have contributed some way. Yeah, Even yeah, if, we always contribute, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure, and 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 actually by by confronting it and recognizing it, and as you say, kind of almost take it down, you then learn and you, you get better for the next time. Right. 100%. Yeah. So one, one of the things I thought, you know, you talk about kid thinking and being more childlike. And I, you know, when you're in a corporation, people have this front. And, and it's not, people are often putting on a mask of who they not really are because they, they believe they have to act a certain way that the leader acts and you talked about us being these communal beings. So we all kind of imitate the leader or behave the way we think they want us to behave. But as a result, we let go of this kid thinking and our childlike instincts. And you give some great ways and great methodologies about how to release that. Yeah. This kind of kid thinking thing is it's, it's really important. One of the things that I, you know, like to do or one of the brain bottle openers that's just so so small and so insignificant it's, it's sort of like a meditation in a way and i always hesitate to talk about like meditation because some people have all these kind of biases against it or these these ideas that it's too mystical it doesn't have a practical um kind of approach one thing i i and I do all these from time to time myself. So I'm look, just looking at my desk right now. I got keys and a pen and my iPhone and these Apple earbud case. And there's letters on a, on a piece of paper that I've written. And so I'm just going to look at, there, there's an F. I wrote the word flights for my tour. So I'm looking at the middle line in the word F. And I'm kind of staring at that right now trying to only focus on that little tiny line for a minute. And I'm not going to do the whole exercise now because it takes, you know, like a minute of time. It's kind of silent. But eliminating... 
Go for it. <laughs> no, no, but <laughs> I'm almost getting into it now. I see my eyes kind of like blurring in this one thing. This idea of shutting out all this urgency, all this noise, all these things that have to be done, all these feelings of either, hey, I'm really successful or I'm really not successful, all these judgments. And just for a moment, it doesn't have to be for two hours or two weeks. It could be for 60 seconds. You find this place of quietude, of silence, of openness, of emptiness. And you kind of breathe there. You breathe in through your nose like, and out through your, your pursed lips like through a straw. You're slowing your breathing way, way down. And this is something that I do if I'm going to go before a show or talk to somebody or even if I'm talking to my wife and it becomes like a heated conversation. <laughs> you kind of you open yourself up to all sorts of other possibilities. Your prejudices and your bias and your 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 sort of reflexive actions and words, they're not as important right now. You're trying to develop newness and freshness. And this is such a tiny, almost sounds very stupid. Like what are you doing? You're staring at this little mark in the middle of the letter F. And you're staring at it. But I, I challenge you to try it for a minute or two. It's very difficult to do, by the way, because you'll start yeah. looking at everything else in the room. Thoughts will intrude. And when they do, it's always important not to go, oh, I couldn't do this. Just sweep them aside and go back to the little mark on the middle of the app or whatever the hell you're looking at. And those kind of things, while they sound very strange and certainly in a business context, you know, there were practical people. We're not crazy people. True, you're practical, but you're a human being. You're comprised of soul and spirit and emotion, drives, chemistry, chemicals. You're not just a practical person. You're basically a walking mystery. And if you think you can overcome that, you're totally wrong. You, you're sexually attracted. This is hilarious. This is scary. You're nothing more than a growing child with a, uh, you know, Amex card and a beard. I mean, yeah. you never outrun your childlike self. And getting yeah. back to it, understanding and appreciating it, it gives you a lot of strength and resilience. Yeah, and that that's the that's the whole idea of the book to let let me out, let me back out again. I'm in here, and you know, I I often find people are very unhappy in that in those roles that they may adopt in a company where they have to be somebody or not because that's how they remain in the role. And it's it's like the world has moved on and has recognized we need to change. The businesses are failing. There's only 12% of the Fortune 500 companies that were around 60 years ago are still in existence. Yet people keep doing the same right. thing and get over and over, and they're not thinking differently. They're not releasing their their inner child to almost solve the problems. Who probably would do a better job because they're looking at them totally differently but than the business context can do. You know, case in point. You know, I have a one of my kids is living in New York, and she graduated. She got a job at a pretty big corporation and she's pretty excited about it. There's a lot of people trying out for the job. So it seemed like it would be amazing. And what she finds is that she can basically do all the work they've asked her to do for a week in like an hour. They don't want to hear any of her ideas. 
they they're so hierarchical and there's so much like everything is so regimented they're getting none of her potential now she's so unhappy about it because who wouldn't be she's so unacknowledged and unexplored and untapped and they're so disadvantaged and this is this is they say 80% of of workers universally worldwide are completely dissatisfied they're basically phoning it in now imagine if you took and changed the percentage, 80% were fully, fully engaged. Companies, societies, everything would prosper. We'd create so much more abundance. And the reason that it's not allowed is everyone's afraid. Look, if I let this this girl, you know, this young woman take her own ideas, maybe they're going to be better than mine and I'll get fired or found out that I'm not valuable. So let's tamp her down, just like my boss is tamping me down. Fundamentally, it has to change. And these companies will be steamrollered anyway. You know, Amazon is coming at them like, you know, like a tank. You could Absolutely. literally hear the wheels coming over the hills and it's all their fault. It's just like the record business that I was in. They could hear it, but they didn't react. It was fear. It was hubris. It was laziness. It was stupidity. Yeah. And that's how and it ends. And hanging on to uh, status quo and hierarchy and all those kind of crazy things. And I mean, you're right. But, man. Yeah. If it's a, in a marriage or any relationship, it, these things are they're universal. Yeah. Where you you need to start breaking down hierarchies. And it's fearful to do that because they afford some people some protection. They give us a sense of, well, what's normal? We need to know we have to have all these standards. True, but when the standards start to impede on your happiness and creativity, there's a problem. Yeah, there's something there's something so liberating about first, you know, dealing with Marv, dealing with this inner critic, and then secondly letting go of your ego and not caring what people think once you don't care what people think because i i know that with so many people who are i always say to them you should write or you should start your own podcast i'll, t- I'll show you how yes, yes. Uh, and then that they don't because they're like oh well you know it's enough money good and you're gonna go well how do you know if you never try you gotta just try and if you don't try and it's out of you know a lack of discipline that's a different thing but don't don't not do it because you think you care what people think because people will always throw mud at you no matter what you do you just got over yeah they like that no nobody wants not everybody wants to see you get in the head even people that love you don't want to see you sometimes get ahead sometimes because maybe if you get ahead you'll leave them mm. yeah, it's, yeah it's a very complicated thing yeah but one one thing, Peter, I know you're you're heading off to a rehearsal now for an upcoming show. But before we do, one thing I thought was so important, and you 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 touched on it with the little meditations that you suggest throughout the book, because meditation, I believe, in this world, in the in the move to the knowledge economy, where we're using our brains more than our hands, our our, our muscles, I suppose, than the previous right. in revolutions. We're moving towards this, you know, fourth industrial revolution of knowledge and technology. But 
you kind of allude to this many times in the book, is detaching from technology to allow yourself to think differently. Well, I think it's really, really huge. And I think that a, a very unexplored frontier of technology, I mean, I could go into this for, for hours, is, is the off button on your iPhone. Now, I, I, would challenge, I challenge everybody to say, do you know anyone who with 100% regularity disengages from his or her iPhone, for example, for 24 hours every week. My feeling is you, you probably don't know anyone that does. And that is going to be soon like a, like a, a vast, weird frontier. You have to find somebody that does this. Who, what is it like? when people are going to be implanting basically virtual reality stuff into their bodies, which is not far off at all. And the fact that you have it in your pocket or it's implanted in your arm makes very little difference at the end of the day. Yeah. What is it like? And the reason I keep talking about disengaging from technology is because every technology comes with it, this, this commercial, this sales aspect. It's trying to sell you shit that you don't need. And how does it sell you? It tells you that you're lacking. It basically is, is something that's, that is making you feel worse about yourself. And that's yeah. the most unsettling part of the whole thing. Yeah, and, and that, that habit of constantly checking is actually built into it, into the user experience into the push notification, keeps bringing it back and releasing dopamine. And then you just, it's just right. like, it's like digital cocaine. It's just bringing it back and giving you're you a rat. every time. You're a, yeah. you're a rat in a maze. What's some of your solutions for that? Because you, you touch on some in the book and I know meditation is certainly one. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I have a whole practice that I do. I've been doing it for 30 years where I, where I disengage from, all technology, so no car, no money, not even playing music. That's a whole other thing. It's maybe a little extreme for people. But to pick, let's say, one day a week, maybe make it easier on yourself, in the evening, you're going to pick up, let's say, a book. You know, a book is actually a pretty sophisticated technology, too. But I'm talking about something that technical or electronic that can actually sell you and track your movements. You're going to say to yourself, I'm going to pick one day a week, two hours a night where I'm not going to use anything. I'm in conversations with my wife, my kids, whatever, my husband, you know, I'm going to cook some food and I'm just going to put that thing aside. And for some people, two hours is a really long time. Um, you know, whatever hurts a little, you should try. Yeah. And I can't, you know, it's hard to quantify exactly what you're going to achieve. It's, it's, you know, like anything else, you know, getting better on guitar or sports or anything. It takes a, lo a long time. The other thing with technology, too, is that we have this weird sense that everything's happening immediately. Immediate gratification. And, 
it's not really gratifying. It's actually stultifying to the spirit. Kind of, you know, the idea is try leading yourself into something else. Something yeah, and be that's in charge. Not, yeah, you know, even for moments at a time, for half hour at a time, you know. Because we we really need that in the world, and we had Maura, Maura Neville Thomas on a few weeks back. Her whole thing is about gaining back your focus and your attention in the workplace. And I, I actually practiced. I, I had her on the show because I bought her book and I read it and I put it into practice. And I'd say my work rate, as in my focus work, trebled because I just was able to oh, get wow, deep. Wow deep into the work because I turned off all my notifications. I unsubscribed from every single email. I told my colleagues in the office, you know, when I have this on my desk, it means don't disturb me. And they don't, they know not to disturb you because you're in deep work and the amount of work you get done. You know, it's like you being in, in, in flow when you're in flow, when you're writing music or you're on stage time doesn't, you know, you don't even notice it go by, but you get so much done. Yeah, it's completely right. It's a total different experience. So any any other tips? And, on, on, you know, I, I said to the audience, I'll, I'll put the links on for the book. It's a great read. It's you, and, you, and you do it great because it's it's a simple read. You're not trying to use any fancy language just to show off, you know, with, with some people do do. You're <laughs> right. trying to tell it to I couldn't stories. do it if I wanted to, you know. <laughs> well, you, you live your, uh, your, your inner child uh, wrote the book, so that's the good thing. Right, right. Yeah, I try to keep it kind of conversational. This idea of the Marv thing, just going back to that for a second, just holding it in your mind, sort of in the back of your mind, is this fear, uh, which is like, you know, a polar bear is going to whack off your head. You know, that's, you should be afraid. That's, that's total fear. You've just fallen out of a plane and you have no parachute that's fear but anxiety is i don't know what they're going to think about me and maybe i shouldn't you know you're waking up at night you can't sleep those are the things you, you need to process is this should i really not start a podcast should i really not start writing because i want to or taking piano lessons is this anxiety or fear and once you have it in your mind you determine most likely correctly, unless it's the polar bear, that it's just anxiety, it gives you a lot more ability and impetus to go for that thing. And the more things that bring you joy that you do in your life, not only are you going to be happier, but you influence the world around you in a much more positive way. And that could be at your, in your workplace, in your family, your friends really just becoming a beacon of light to people around you is hugely important. Well, that's a, a really nice way to leave it. And as I said, great book, Let Me Out, musician and author, Peter Immelman. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Aiden. My pleasure.